And beloved, I want to speak to you this morning about a difficult topic. It's not the kind of message that one takes delight in in preaching, but it's a message that we need to hear as a people of God. And it's a message about sexual sin. I need to address with you the topic of sexual sin. Sexual temptation and the accompanying sin and the idolatry that it represents has brought ruin to more of the people of God, I suspect, than probably any other sin. The consequences are really serious and very, very devastating. And I think that in our day and age, uh, we underestimate the severity of this particular sin. And so we need to hear from the Word of God and to be realigned, refocused, gain the mind of Christ in a topic that, of course, you probably are not all that enthused to hear about, and I'm not all that enthused to preach about. But it's essential. The scriptures are replete with example and warning with regard to the ruin of sexual sin, the devastating consequences that it brings upon the people of God. We see it in, for example, numbers. And so I want to, just as we get going here, I've got a lengthy introduction uh, to this. And um, anyway, it's worth it, I think, to... um, to just survey the scriptures here a little bit about this topic. So the book of Numbers, and in particular chapter 25, is probably a good place to begin to talk about this and to talk about it under the the warning and the example that is given us in the word of God as to the devastating consequences of this particular sin, these kinds of behaviors. So into Numbers 25, we arrive at what's called the sin of Peor. The sin of Peor, and it is an event in the history of the children of Israel that remained with them. There were many, many examples of their disobedience during their wilderness wanderings. And the book of Numbers, of course, covers about 38 years of that 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness. And there are a number of things that stand out in the book, of course, but one that stands out in the history of the nation is the sin of Peor. So here in chapter 25, it is recounted for us, beginning in verse 1, Where it is written, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. 
The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. A terrible event, terrible event in the life of the children of Israel. They joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Why? How? It falls in the, in the narrative of Balak's calling of the, of the pagan prophet Balaam to come and to curse Israel. And God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. And so in order to receive the payment that Balak had offered him, when God prevented Balaam from cursing the people of Israel, then Balaam came up with another strategy, another strategy to bring about the downfall of the nation of Israel. And if you'll flip over to chapter 31 of Numbers, we get a glimpse of what indeed was going on. In verse 8, You might read over it, but at the end of verse 8, where Israel is bringing about God's judgment on Midian, the end of verse 8, it says, They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And if you drop down to verse 16, where Moses there says to to the people, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these, that is the women, caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to to, uh, trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. In other words, Balaam, having been prevented by God of cursing the nation of Israel, in order to receive the monetary prize that Balak had promised him, counseled there to ensnare the people in the sin of Baal Peor. In other words, in the worship of Baal, which was a sexualized worship. 
They drew the nation into immorality, into sexual sin, combined with the idolatrous worship, and it became a snare for the nation. And it resulted in the death of 24,000. 24,000. Now, that's not an obscure event in the, in the history of the nation of the people of God. In fact, if you will turn to the end of your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, in the words of Christ through the prophet John to the seven churches of Revelation, we arrive to the message of the third church, the church of Pergamum, where Jesus addresses the, the leaders of the church of Pergamum. And he says in verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In other words, this Sin, this, this com combination of idolatry and sexual immorality is a snare to the people of God. It was back in the book of Numbers, and it remains a snare and manifested itself again there in the book of Revelation near the end of the first century. If you go back with me to Leviticus we again see the warnings of God and the seriousness of sexual immorality among the people of God. In the 20th chapter of Leviticus, there is a, a listing of all kinds of vile sexual sins. And I am not going to take the time to read them and go through them. But it is an awful litany. And there in verse 22, after Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, has called all this stuff out among the Canaanites. These are the practices of the Canaanites. He writes to his people, verse 22, You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances to do them, so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Why did God drive out the Canaanites? He drove them out of the land and brought down judgment upon them because of their wickedness, not the least of which was this disgustingly vile sexual behavior. It's an offense to God. If you'll flip with me to Daniel chapter 9, the book of Daniel, which follows the prophet Ezekiel, there in chapter 9, the prophet Daniel in Babylon, having studied the prophecies of Jeremiah, 
And recognizing that the the prophesied 70-year captivity was coming near an end, began to pray on behalf of his people. He took the, the sin of his people to his own heart and vocalized it to God on their behalf. And we find it here in the ninth chapter. And he writes, beginning in verse 7, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is to this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And on he goes. He is recognizing the reality that they are in captivity in Babylon because they as a nation committed the same abominations that the Canaanites had committed before them. And they have been driven from the land. It had spewed them out. It had spewed them out. We fast forward to the New Testament and to the time of Christ. What was the state of the nation of Israel having been returned by the mercies of God from the Babylonian captivity? 500 years, a little over that, 550 years or so had passed. What was the state of the nation? Jesus, speaking here on the Sermon on the Mount contrasting true righteousness, a a true understanding of the law, with that which the Pharisees had been teaching the nation. Those who were the teachers of the nation, those who were the stewards and custodians, as it were, of the word of God, whose mission was to disciple and, and shepherd the people of God, had in the area of the Mosaic law, the the expressed will of God, perverted it by externalizing it. And in particular, in verse 27 of of chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5 and verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has committed adultery already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, they were being taught that to look is fine, just don't touch. Look, but don't touch. That the sin lies in the the commission of the behavior. And Jesus says, you are so wrong. You have missed God's mind in all of this. As you flip over to Romans chapter 2, you find the fruit of a look-but-don't-touch mindset. Looking but not touching ultimately ends up in touching. And there in Romans chapter 2, where Paul, beginning in verse 17, calls the Jewish people to account And he writes in verse 22, You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Beloved, the problem didn't end with the Jewish people. The coming of Christ and the establishment of the church, the age of the spirit in which you and I now live, in which the law of God is now written on our hearts, with the spirit of God, there remains the, this ancient enemy, this, this danger that lurks. And so throughout the New Testament, we find over and over and over again the apostles writing to the believers there of the first century and warning them about the devastating consequences of sexual immorality. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, an early letter chronologically of the apostle Paul, and writing to a really wonderful church, a church that has got so much going for it, a church that has stood up in the face of persecution, a church whose who's living and speaking of the gospel message has been heard all over the world. Paul commends them, and yet he warns them in chapter 4. And he says in verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. In other words, this is not in new information to you. This is something that we have already commanded and warned you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. To these believers in Thessalonica, these, these wonderful model Christian people, who are living and speaking the gospel all over the world, he's warning them here, you need to abstain. You need to be very, very careful. Each of you needs to know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. We all know about the problems of the church in Corinth, don't we? But a church that was so remarkably gifted by God, so remarkably gifted and so messed up. And there in Corinth, the very cesspool of the ancient world, much like Los Angeles today, Paul writes to the Corinthian believers some very strong words in the sixth chapter of what we know as 1 Corinthians. And there he warns them in verse 9 and following, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he begins to list out all kinds of vile and immoral behaviors. And he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. In other words, you have been brought into a new reality. This must not be named among you. And he continues through the rest of the chapter, and he talks about the reality that you belong to the Lord. And so what in the world are you doing uniting yourself to a prostitute? Very strong words. Very strong words. In his letter to the church at Rome, in chapter 13, a church he had never yet visited, but he writes to them in chapter 13 and verse 13, 
Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Again, very strong words. Very strong words. The Jewish Christians addressed in Hebrews chapter 13. And in verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Two more. Jude chapter 1. In a warning about the false teachers who slip into the church. Jude chapter 1 verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Those who take the grace of God and use it as a wedge, as a lever to insert sensuality into and among the people of God. These are false teachers, Jude says. And since we're here, Revelation chapter 2 again. This time the church at Thyatira. And in verse 20. Or maybe we'll pick it up in verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance. And that your deeds of late are greater than at first. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The scriptures are replete with example and warning of the dangers of sexual immorality of the people of God. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. It carries forward into the history of the church. The very history of the Christian church in the last 2,000 years demonstrates the ongoing seriousness and and how the, the children of God, the followers of Christ, have continued to have to wrestle with this clear and present danger. I'm reminded of Origen, for example. Origen, one of the most controversial figures of the third century, one of the early church fathers, living in 8185, dying in 254. So there, the middle, early of the third century. Origen, according to all accounts, was a remarkable young man. Raised in a very devout Christian home, his father himself taken into martyrdom. And Origen wanting to follow his father and his mother holding him back by taking his clothes. And his modesty kept him from his own martyrdom. But this earnest young man 
battling against the, the fleshly lusts and desires and taking Matthew 19, 12 literally and unfortunately so because he later repented of it in life, but he castrated himself in an attempt to fight against the sexual temptations that come to young men. We have the history of monasticism in the church. Following Constantine's victory at the Milvian Bridge in AD 312, Constantine the Emperor, Constantine I, embraced Christianity. And with his embrace of Christianity, the, the brutal Roman persecutions that had been ongoing for nearly two centuries substantially came to an end. And the church became from an outcast and a persecuted minority to that of favored status. They began to receive government patronage. And along with it, all of the power and the wealth and the, and the attendant politics that go with such things. And that was, was once a persecuted minority became a persecuting majority. And there were mass conversions the results of which was an appalling level of degeneracy in the Christian church. Pagans came in by the boatload, and they did not leave their paganism behind. And earnest men and women of God were appalled at what they saw. And so in response to it, Many of the ordinary Christians, having become disgusted at the, the sinful state of the empire and the church at large, decided to opt out. They decided to kind of follow the pattern of John the Baptist and to, and to leave it all behind and to, and to go off into the wilderness, off into the desert and become ascetics. To put aside the, the worldly things. That was their way to try to deal with all of the pressures and the temptations was to put it away and to live a life of a, of a hermit. So they lived these simple lives. Simple lives. One of the predominant features of this ascetic lifestyle was the popularity of celibacy. Celibacy. In other words, that the way to deal with sexual temptation is to just put it all away, just put away marriage and all of the physicalities of men and women. As one author, one church historian says that this grew in such popularity to the point that by the end, quote, of the fourth century, most Christians had come to accept that celibacy was better than marriage. Better than marriage. It was a higher spiritual state. It was something to be, to, to be looked up to, something to be pursued. How do I deal, and they would have said, with sexual temptation? You need to put all sexual activity away, both inside and outside of marriage. It was during this time that congregations began to insist that their bishops must be celibate men. This is the origin of the celibacy of the Roman Catholic priesthood. Well, following the Protestant Reformation and the rediscovery of the gospel in the 15th and 16th centuries, there was, a, there was another group, a group of earnest men and women, Christian men and women, and they were known as Puritans. 
They were known as Puritans. They get a bad rap. Use the word Puritan or Puritanical, and people think you are like somehow this this, um, person who is against all worldly fun or or physical things or whatever, and that couldn't be further from the truth. The Puritans were, were earnest in their attempt to integrate biblical fidelity into all aspects of life. That was the driving Puritan motive. They rejected the errors of monasticism and began to recover the the biblical beauty and glory of marriage and the attendant sexual expression within the covenant confines of marriage. But they faced what is known as the Puritan Dilemma. The Puritan Dilemma, and hence the title of this, what is going to be a multi-part sermon series. The Puritan Dilemma. What do we mean by that? The Puritans were earnest in their attempts to integrate biblical fidelity and real-life issues. And it was called the Puritan Dilemma. In other words, how to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we live in the world, but not of the world? The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the following. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. Those of you who are old enough to remember the 20th century thought that would snap up a couple of heads. In the 20th century, it would be common to hear from American evangelical pulpits sermons warning about worldliness, about worldliness. But here we are today, firmly ensconced in the 21st century. And nary is the topic ever addressed. Seldom is heard a sermon on worldliness and the devastating consequences both for individual believers and the church at large. It's just not talked about. It's not fashionable. And it's not talked about. Now, the reasons for this, no doubt, are many, but two of them, I think, that are significant is that one is a reaction, a reaction against what was often a legalistic approach to the topic of worldliness. In other words, it it was put into a series of do's and don'ts. I don't go with girls who, who, uh, how does it go? No, I don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls that do. You never heard that? Some of you did. I know some of you. Come on, you fundamentalists. You've heard this. (laughs) 
So I think there's been a reaction against that. To address the topic of worldliness now is, oh, here he goes talking legalism again. You're going to talk about how short, how long, how deep, how wide, how tight, how whatever. No, I'm not. I'm not. But I think also the reason we don't hear about it is because we live in an anti-authority time. It is the spirit of the age. You can't tell me what to do. So people don't want to hear it. Now it is a blessing that there has been a recovery of the transforming grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has been a, it has been a wonderful breath of fresh air that has, that has blown through the church of Christ. An emphasis, a renewed emphasis on grace. It is the true gospel. And it has a profound effect. In fact, it's the basis of Christian morality and ethics. And so in it, we can and should rejoice. But following along with the recovery of the the gospel of grace has come this new thing. It's a, it's a desire to be hip, to be relevant, to be in touch with our culture around us. And, and beloved, I'm afraid that, that the evangelical church in America is chasing a declining morality downhill so that we might be relevant, so we might be hip, so we can reach people with the gospel. I don't think we have to look too far to see the evidences of such things. And I would suggest to you that one of the evidences for the truthfulness of the statement is the entertainment choices of the evangelical church in America. We are mass consumers of entertainment. Entertainment that is produced in Hollywood by ungodly people with ungodly motives. And we spend a lot of money and a lot of time chasing it. We give little or no serious thought to the implications of what we're viewing and its, and its impression upon us long term. Sure, I can see this. It's only rated, whatever. I mean... Why in the world would we rely on a rating system developed by pagans who want to sell movie tickets? And yet we do. I think two of the topics that, um, and I think they're related, by the way, that generate probably the, the largest protests of legalism. One of them I've already hit, that's entertainment. So I might as well hit the other one, equal opportunity offender here, and that's the immodesty. I think when I talk about modesty and entertainment, people think, okay, here goes the legalist again. He's going to tell me, how short can it be? How low can it be? How tight can it be? I'm not interested in Because the issue is way bigger than that, way deeper than that. What is worldliness? We should start with a definition. What is worldliness? 
A good definition, I think, comes from a book by that same title, Worldliness, subtitled Resisting the Seduction of a Fallen World. I recommend the book. What is worldliness? According to the book, it is, quote, it is a love of this fallen world. It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. It exalts our opinions above God's truth. It elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. In other words, living for ourselves. Living for ourselves. Now, the topic of worldliness is huge. There's many things that could and should be addressed with regard to it, and we're not going to do that But what we are going to do now is look at the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I didn't lose sight of it. Because we are going to focus our discussions of worldliness upon that topic which Paul brings up here and really dominates the fifth chapter. Our text in particular for this series begins in verse 6 of chapter 5, running through verse 14, and it is a continuation of his instructions that we looked at a few weeks ago in verses 3 through 5. In other words, in the context of the book of Ephesians, the entire discussion here, really, of of chapter 5 is about sexual immorality. When I first began to think about this text earlier in the week, or last week, I was inclined to kind of move through it quickly, verses 6 through 14, cover them in one sermon, round up the usual suspects, slap them around a little bit, and then move on to something else. But I couldn't. I couldn't. I was compelled to stop and to slow down and to take some serious consideration of the words that are written here for my own soul and for yours. So we are going to slow down as we look at these verses and we're going to attempt to wrestle with our own contemporary form of the Puritan dilemma. We're going to look at the Puritan dilemma here in the year 2018. I do know what year it is, okay, for those of you who were here last week. And we want to look at our own version of the Puritan dilemma informed by the words of the Apostle Paul here in chapter 5. Now, (coughs) excuse me. There's a big outline. I told you I was going to deal with this in one sermon. So I have a big outline for verses 6 through 14. I'll, I'll just give it to you. It's going to be the super outline that sits on top of this, and there's going to be mini outlines underneath it. But the big super outline that sits on top of this are, are that there are three guiding principles here. Three guiding principles to be found here in verses 6 through 14. Principles we need to keep in mind as we navigate our way through the Puritan dilemma. 
So here they are. I'm going to read the text for you in a minute, but I'm going to go ahead and, and give you the, the, um, these guiding principles. The first is in verses 6 through 10. 6 through 10. It is that we need to grow up theologically. That's the first principle. We need to grow up theologically, 6 through 10. Secondly, verses 11 to 13, we need to speak up truthfully. We need to grow up theologically. Secondly, we need to speak up truthfully. And third, in verse 14, so that people might wake up spiritually. So speak up, or excuse me, grow up theologically, speak up truthfully so that people might wake up spiritually. That's basically the idea in verses 6 through 14. So this morning, we're going to begin. We'll see how far we get. We need to grow up theologically. Verses 6 and following, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of, light, of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Walk as children of the light, verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, we need to grow up. We need to grow up. If we are to develop a, a mature and robust sexual ethic then we need to leave immaturity behind. We need to grow up theologically. We need to grow up theologically. We need in our thinking to be shaped by not our culture, but by the Word of God. In other words, we need to be willing to be unflinching in our, in our honest look at what the Scriptures have to say to us, and in particular what Paul says to us in this chapter, and then prayerfully consider how to apply that truth in the culture in which you and I live. These are timeless truths, but the application of them has its own cultural context. Now, to grow up theologically, there are presented here in verses 6 through 10, three foundational truths. Okay, so three overarching guiding principles. Under the first guiding principle, there are three foundational truths. Index in, if you're a note-taker. First, foundational truth under growing up theologically. In verses 6 and 7, here it is, sexual sin is serious. Sexual sin is serious. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is Paul's second warning, his second warning. Notice here in verses 3 through 5, he gives us the first warning, where he says, For you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Therefore, sexual immorality and, and filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting and all of that is not fitting for the child of God. So he, he comes back to it again, and here he gives us another warning, and he, and he is warning the Ephesian believers because they are vulnerable to being deceived, right? Verse 6, let no one deceive you. You only tell that to people who could be deceived, who are vulnerable to being deceived. And it's a word to you and I. 
It's a word to you and I as well. We are vulnerable to being deceived or being misled in the area of sexual ethics. Now, what form did the deception take? It's hard to know for sure. It's hard to know. It could have been sort of the prevailing Platonic Greek philosophy that that relegated sexual behavior and activity to matters of what they would call indifference. Over in 1 Corinthians, don't turn there, I'll just read it for you, but in chapter 6, verse 13, where Paul's addressing that specifically there, he he quotes a, a little proverb that was evidently common in that place and in that time. And it was this, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. In other words, that you know, eating is just this biological thing and, and that's what your stomach is made for and so eat and be happy. And, and it was being applied to the idea that, that the sexual organs have been given to you by God and, they, and it's just go ahead and use them and enjoy it. It's just biology. It's just biology. Maybe this was the deception that the Ephesians were being uh, susceptible to. They were certainly pagans who had come out of a very dark place. Right? We read in Acts 19 how when they had turned to Christ, they had come out of, the, of, of a world of demonic and the occult, and they had, they had burned their magic books that, that were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. So all of the immorality that, that, that accompanied that kind of demonic worship was, was part of their culture? But whatever the arguments that were, that were deceiving them with regard to these things, notice what Paul calls them. He calls them empty words. Empty words. In other words, words that are devoid of truth. And the reason that they're devoid of truth is because they do not take seriously the fact that God's righteous wrath will fall upon this kind of behavior. Look at it, verse 6. Let no one deceive you. Let no one trick you with words devoid of truth, for because of these things, what things? The things listed in verses 3 and following, because of these kinds of things, that is, filthy speech, filthy minds, immoral behaviors, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. Who were these deceivers? We don't know. We can only offer some possibilities. It may have been what one would call libertine Christians. Libertine Christians. In other words, those who are children of God, but want to see how close to the edge of the cliff they can walk. How far can they push the boundaries of grace? Those that that sort of approach life with... How close can I get to sin and still be a Christian? How much of the world can I, can I have and still be a child of God? People use grace as a, as a covering for, their, for their, the lust of their flesh. Those in the church that are often indistinguishable from the culture at large with regard to the, the way they conduct their lives, the way they dress, their 
As I say, their entertainment choices, their, their language, their speech, what they find funny. Maybe libertine Christians. Maybe heretics. Maybe heretics, those, those people Jude warns about, right, who, who slip in unnoticed in order to destroy and subvert the people of God, that infiltrate the church through their destructive false teaching. Right? We, we saw it there over in Revelation 2, those that come and teach the, the teachings of Baal, inserted into the church. So maybe heretics. And maybe it's just their Gentile friends and family members. You know, the ones that tell you to, hey, loosen up. Don't be so uptight about things. You know, you Christians, you know, you're always so uptight. Just, you know, kick back. Have a cold one. We're just watching a movie. What are you so worried about? Maybe that's it. We don't know. We can't know for sure. But whoever they are, whoever they might be, and maybe a combination of all of them, they're found inside and outside the church, I think. And Paul is saying, don't fall for their lies. Do not fall for their lies. Why? Because the wrath of God is coming on this particular sin and its manifestations. In other words, God is really, really, really angry about this stuff. Now, it's probably a good place as any to just insert this, to, to say and affirm that, that Paul is not talking about the child of God who occasionally slips and falls. We all slip and fall. If not, I mean, in our thought life, to be sure. And some get carried away and they end up falling behaviorally as well. Can the child of God fall into sexual immorality? Yes, they can. But it doesn't characterize their life. It can't characterize their life. It can't. We bear the the family resemblance of Christ. Look down in verse 8. You were formerly darkness. Not in darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. In other words, when you have come to Christ... And you have closed with him by faith and and he has become yours and you have become his. There has been a transformation that has occurred. You have moved from the realm of Adam into the realm of Christ. And that is a a one-way ticket. You never can go back there and live there again. That's not who you are. That man died. But sure, we can slip and fall. We can slip and fall. But it's not who we are. Notice there again in verse 6, the wrath of God comes upon not the child of God. The wrath of God comes upon, look at it, the sons of disobedience. I want you to go back to chapter 2 where we can find that term again. Where Paul writes and he says, you were, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan himself, of the spirit that is now working, and there's your term, 
working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. We are not that anymore. If you have closed with Christ, you are no longer a son of disobedience, one who is characterized by disobedience so that disobedience could be called your father. It's an impossibility. But it's not impossible to slip and fall. Hence the warnings. Hence the warnings. Now why is deception with regard to sexual immorality so very dangerous? Why? Well, I think first off, it's because we're all susceptible to its allures. All of us. It doesn't, it, young and old. It's not something one outgrows. You're young people, I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you, you know what, just hang on. When you get old enough, it all goes away. It doesn't. It doesn't. So all of us are, are susceptible to the temptations, to the allures of it all. The other reason why I think it is so dangerous is because it tends to start small and then grow exponentially. It starts small in the mind with a stray thought, a stray glance, maybe laughing at a little joke at the office, and then it grows, and it grows bigger, and it grows exponentially so that what once satisfied no longer satisfies. It's like drinking salt water. It doesn't quench the thirst. It just want more and more and more, and that's how it works. We find ourselves like Samson, surrendering more and more of our hearts to the temporary pleasures of sin until we wake up in bondage to the Philistines with our eyes poked out. This is how it works. It's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Oh, question. Is God a prude? Maybe, you know, maybe we should, maybe we should answer that, huh? Like, is, is God, you know, embarrassed by human sexuality? Is that what this is all about? You know, maybe God's just, like, really embarrassed by all of this, and, and so he's saying, hey, you know what? I made it, but it was a mistake, and whatever. You couldn't be further from the truth. Our sexuality is God's good gift to us, designed to be expressed in love and joy. It's a spiritual act of worship provided that it, is, that it is enjoyed within the God-given confines of the marriage covenant. That's where it belongs. And in there, it's a glorious thing. Read the book of, of a Song of Solomon. I mean, it's a celebration of, of marital love. But outside of that, God hates it. And why does he hate it so much? I think he hates it so much because it, it twists what is his good gift and it turns it back in on itself so that it becomes the basis of, of, of the most gross selfishness and, and self-gratification. It takes what God has designed to be good and wholesome and to be enjoyed and it distorts it and, and twists it around. And it ultimately goes hand in hand with idolatry. Sexuality and idolatry 
They go hand in hand. Hand in hand. Therefore, verse 7, do not be partakers with them. Right? Don't be deceived by empty words, by hollow arguments. Because the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience for these kinds of things. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Listen, but the solution here is not monasticism. An earlier generation, and we shouldn't mock them. I mean, it's easy to throw stones at the monastics. You know, hey, those poor dumb rubes, you know, they thought they could go into the desert and get rid of this. I mean, those people were serious. I mean, you give up everything. They gave away their fortunes, many of them. And what they understood is to be the pursuit of God. So would we? Let's just be careful before we throw the stones. But, but the answer is not monasticism. In other words, you can't run away from sin because why? Well, you're dragging it with you. See, that's the problem. It's inside, and so we just drag it with us. But what Paul is saying here is do not be partakers with them. In other words, don't be in partnership with those immersed in the sins of immorality. Word here translated um, partners, sumatokos. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. It's used over in this same epistle, chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul says, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellows, here it is, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. In other words, it speaks about one who shares in a possession or a relationship. Do not share in the possession or relationship with those who are the sons of disobedience. It's talking about intimacy here. Do not be in intimate relationships with those who do not know God. Now Paul's not prohibiting all association, right? I mean, you look again back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Or he's addressing it with him there and those poor people. Where he says, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, I did not mean, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you need to run off into a monastic setting. What I'm telling you is don't associate with any so-called brother, he tells the Corinthians. Here, he's telling the Ephesians that you are not to be in the close partnership with those who are the sons of disobedience. By the way, a topic he picks up in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, where he says, what partnership, right, is the child of God with Belial? Do not be unequally yoked, he talks about there. So, beloved, we are to be like Jesus in the world, but not of the world. In other words, we are to be moving about among the lost and the hurting so that we can share the gospel with them in word and deed. But, but you have to be, we must be, I must be very, very cautious about who's evangelizing whom. Whose gospel is getting through. Am I evangelizing them, or are they evangelizing me? Perhaps you find yourself this morning caught in sexual immorality. 
A crowd this size, there's likelihood. There's a likelihood that somebody out here is caught. They are bound. You know who you are. You're bound with the leg irons of immorality. And I know what's going on in your mind right now. What's going on in your mind right now is, is a little voice that is screaming at you saying, don't tell anybody. Do not tell. Keep it a secret. And beloved, as long as you keep it a secret, there will be no deliverance. None. None. Sin loves darkness. And it fears the light. We must come to the light. You need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ right now, where you're sitting in the, in the deepest part of your own heart and mind. Come to Christ. Confess your sin. Ask him to forgive you. Call upon him to, to pour forth the grace of the gospel into your life to, to free you from this bondage. And then do the one thing you're afraid to do. Tell somebody. Tell somebody. Sexual sin loves deception. It thrives in the shadows and in the darkness. Think about that one person you're most afraid to tell. And then tell them. Tell them. Bring it into the light. For this is the path of deliverance. And as long as you don't, as long as you say, hey, I, I'll deal with it myself. I, I know I can do this. I, I just got to repent. If I just repent and call out to Jesus, then everything will be fine. No one will ever know. It'll all be in the past. It'll just be the history. It'll be a little secret between me and God. He'll work it out at the Bama seat someday. Don't fall for that lie. You will never be free. You will never be free as long as you keep it hidden. Don't let the lie of the devil hold you back. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. May God through his spirit grant each of us the strength to fight, but whoever that one is out here this morning, may the spirit of God work in you. You can be free. You can be free. Let's pray. Our Father, may you, in this moment of time, through your Holy Spirit, search our minds and our hearts. Search us to see if there be any wicked thought in us any unconfessed sin, any closet or room in our life that we have, we have slammed and locked the door and, and sealed it off from others and foolishly thinking we can seal it off from you. 
Lord, it's scary. That one who was in darkness right now and the consequences of coming forward, it's a scary thing. But our Father, it's a scarier thing to contemplate the wrath of God. Oh Lord, let judgment begin in the household of God. Cleanse your people. Change us. Help us to love righteousness. Let us follow Christ, your own son, who walked among fallen humanity redemptively, who could reach out and touch the leper, the outcast, the prostitute, without being defiled and to bring the grace of God. Oh Lord, we want to be that. We are vessels of your spirit. Use us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.